0: So I want to be honest with you, this, this passage that Christy just read, um, this is a challenging passage for me to preach on, it really is. We're family, we don't keep secrets, this is a hard passage for me to preach on for two reasons. One, it's very convicting. This is a passage that talks about having faith in God and praying boldly, praying with expectation. William Carey, the great missionary said, attempt great things for God, but expect great things from God. I find that I fall way short on that second half of that prayer. I'm always attempting to do amazing things for God. I mean, I hope I am. I'm a church planner. I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm always hoping and attempting to do great things from God. But sometimes my expectations are so low. The threshold is so low. That's because I don't believe that God wants to answer prayer or wants to use me. So it's convicting because of that. It's also convicting because the majority of my ministry, I have stood against... Uh, a teaching, a prevalent teaching in the church that that goes by the name of prosperity teaching. And that is people that are claiming promises that God never made in the Bible. And I think it's a cruel theology to tell somebody that's bound to a wheelchair, you know, God would have healed you if you had enough faith. He wants you healed, but you're not exercising faith, so he's not going to heal you and it's your fault. When we know many godly people are sick because God and His sovereignty, that's, that's their lot. And He has a very glorifying purpose for that. So I've spent a majority of my ministry standing against that. Um, and I find that when false teachers that promote prosperity teaching teach, they, they quote passages like this. So when you actually come to the passage and you see that there is a truthfulness in some of what they say, that's, that's true of every heresy, by the way, and every false teaching has just enough truth in it to be attractive to you, like rat poison. You know how much poison is in rat poison? Very little. I've heard like less than 1%. The rest is rat food, right? So this is is a hard passage for, for me to preach on because my temptation, and again, I'm being honest with you, my temptation is to spend the majority of my time in this passage telling you what it does not mean, right? And we lose the power of it. I'm guilty of this as a preacher. Very often I'm guilty of this. I'll come to a passage, there's an amazing promise and an amazing truth that God wants to unleash in our lives, and I'll spend the majority of my time so over-qualifying what that promise is that it loses its power. Do you know what I mean? It's very easy to do that. Now, we know it says this, but, but hang on there, cowboy. <laughs> You've got to remember this, 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 oh, and look, we're out of time. Well, let's pray. <laughs> and then what do you leave with? You leave with negatives. doesn't mean this, this, or this. So this is a challenging passage for me. And I didn't want to preach it. (laughs) I was like, I'll preach on a psalm this week and really just leave this in the oven. Sermons are like cakes. They're always in the oven cooking and they're never quite done. But eventually you've got to pull them out and preach them. And so God has really encouraged me this week as I've just stood looking at this passage right in the face and said, God, do with this what you want in my heart. And then sometimes it starts with leadership, what God's going to do in and through a church. So I'm encouraged and trust that God's going to help all of us through this passage. This is about... The Power of Prayer, and the title of the sermon is, Whatever You Ask. Um, In the very beginning of this, you know the context of this. I'm not going to spend time talking about context. Jesus just cursed a fig tree the day before this happened, and he cleansed out the temple because the temple is barren just as much as that fig tree was barren, and virtually Jesus cursed both of those things. He said, this temple is no longer necessary. I'm the temple. temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations to gather, find God, find forgiveness, bear fruit, right? wasn't happening. temple was not accomplishing its purpose, so the Lord cleansed it. That fig tree that he encountered was boasting all these enormous leaves of religiosity. Boasting, you know, a fig tree would produce figs first and then leaves. So if you ever see a fig tree that has big leaves, it's telling you, "Woohoo! over here, I got some big luscious fruit for you to enjoy. And Jesus, on the way to cleanse the temple, saw that fig tree, He was hungry because he's a man as well as God. He went to the fig tree, looked for the figs. There were none. False advertisement. That fig tree was cursed because it was false. And same with Israel. Same with the temple. So Jesus cursed that fig tree. And the next morning, they're going to the temple. And look what happens here. Um, Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to the roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. That fig tree that you cursed has withered. And verse 22 says, and Jesus answered them. Now, there's not really a question here, though. Jesus is answering a question that wasn't asked. But, you know, other gospel recorders, Matthew, Luke, John, they present some stories. And Matthew records this story, and he adds a question that Peter asked. And this is what he said. Matthew clears up the, what the question was. He says, when the disciples saw the withered fig tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered. So Jesus is actually answering a question that the disciples asked. And they're always asking questions like this. This happened back in chapter 9. You know, the the transfiguration on the mountain. Jesus was with two of his disciples. They came down from the mountain. There was a demon-possessed boy there whose father had brought him to the other disciples. They couldn't cast this demon out. You remember? Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Bring the child here to me, and he cast out the demon. And the disciples get Jesus alone later in the house, and they're like, Master, uh, how come we couldn't do that? What was going on? How come we didn't have any power? They're always asking him, "How'd how'd you do that, Lord? They didn't ask Jesus why he cursed the fig tree. They knew. They got the object lesson. They got the parable. What they wanted to know is, how did you do that? And Jesus' answer here, he's basically saying, guys, I just cursed a plant. That's nothing. If you have faith in God, if you have faith in the power and the might of God, not only can you do something tiny like this, you can take up mountains from their base and cast them into the sea. So this this is a convicting and a challenging message. That's what Jesus is telling these guys. The same thing. That he is telling us. So with that in mind, today's message is is titled, Whatever You Ask. And so our outline, I'd like to show you the outline is, number one, whatever you ask. We're always talking about prayer. We're always writing about prayer. We're always thinking about prayer, hopefully. But are we praying? And I want to challenge you this morning. Are you asking God? Are you praying? Christians pray. Jonathan Edwards said that prayer should be as natural as breath. Just to, nobody has to tell you to breathe. It's almost what is involuntary. You breathe when you sleep. You don't say heart beat, lungs contract, right? It happens. If you're alive, you breathe. And if you're a Christian, you should pray. You should pray. You should ask. But how do you ask? Jesus is teaching us a, a really powerful lesson here on prayer. And three points. One, you ask in faith. Two, you ask your Father. And three, you ask with forgiveness. So that's what the outline is here. Number one is you ask in faith. And that means this, you expect God to answer. You expect God to answer. I heard the story of a little girl in her Sunday school class, and their teacher as a project was telling all these students, look, we're all going to write to a missionary in in a foreign field, maybe a third world country, and we're going to encourage them and let them know we're praying for them. So a missionary received a letter, and he was telling a friend, he said, look, I I received a letter from this little girl in third grade from a church. And apparently um, their teachers told them that missionaries are really busy and they probably won't be able to respond to the letter that you write because her letter went like this Dear Reverend Smith we are praying for you we do not expect an answer (laughs) (laughs) now without knowing it that little girl may have very well summed up our problem as Christians we are praying maybe perhaps we're asking God to do hard things but do we really expect God to answer what Jesus is saying here is you should You should expect God to answer. He wants to answer. (laughs) That's the nature of God. He is a giving God. He has an abundance of riches that he wants to lavish his children with. Just like you, if you're a father, you know a little something about this. You want to bestow good things on your children. And God does too. And we've been considering a little bit in this passage how Jesus is a king. That's what the context is. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's a different kind of king. He cleansed out the temple. He has authority. He's, he's a king that rules, but he's also a king that serves. And some people, some historians, some scholars believe that when Jesus was lecturing his disciples here, giving them this lesson on faith, he was standing beside this withered tree on the road to the temple on the Mount of Olives. And he's saying, if you have faith, even the size of a mustard seed, he says in other passages, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea, and it will be done for you. That's where the name it, claim it comes from. Believe it's already happened and it will be done, right? But Jesus is actually saying that here. <laughs> and some people believe that, that from the distance where he's standing, and some of you have been to Israel, Steve, maybe you can collaborate this. Cliff talked to me about it. Um, that you could have seen King Herod's fortress that he built. He, called it after, he named it after himself, ironically enough, the Herodian. And it was a fortress that he had built that would have been magnificent. You know, King Herod, amongst other things, was a master architect and engineer. He built aqueducts, he built theaters, he built temples, he built palaces, and he built fortresses. And he built this fortress on top of the mountain that wasn't quite big enough for him. So you know what he did? He had thousands of slaves take a nearby mountain manually and move it on top of this other little mountain to build it up where it was fitting for him and his might, you know, Herod the Great. And then he built his, fort, his fortress on top of it. And everyone would have known that King Herod literally moved a mountain. This wicked pagan king on the backs of slaves. He was a tyrant. He was a murderer. He was cruel. He was unjust. So this king moved that mountain. And Jesus is saying, you can move mountains if you trust the better king, <laughs> the better king than Herod. And he will do this through you because you're his people and you have a spirit within you. So perhaps that's what Jesus meant. But I, I know this. Um, I know what mountains represent. They represent human impossibilities. Don't they? They do. They represent moving a mountain. A mountain would mean something that's impossible for you to do. Now, I just want to help you understand why do you come to church and listen to sermons? You know, it's, it's the preacher's job to, to make you interested. <laughs> it's the, in, in some sense to tell you that this message is relevant. So I want to ask you a question. Anybody in this room have a human impossibility in your life that you need God's help with, then this should be ultra-relevant to you. It it should. This should. How many many mountains might be... If we were all honest this morning, how many mountains would be represented in this room? A marriage that's dissolving or dissolved? A health crisis you can't even talk about, it's too painful? Money? Your job, your career, your loneliness? You're looking for a spouse, you're bitter, Maybe? or you're you're angry at God, or you're in doubt. Why, Lord? Something you've been a loved one that you've been praying for for decades still has rejected the gospel time and time again. Or maybe a secret besetting sin that's so enticed and captivated and dominated your life, you don't even feel like God cares anymore, that He just... How many mountains are in this room right now? Oh, my friends, if we could list them, it would overwhelm us. But the point is, it would not overwhelm God. He's ready He's ready to help you with those mountains. But so often, we just stop believing. God either doesn't care... Whenever we talk about why don't people pray more, sometimes we'll say, well, it's guilt or it's a little bit of laziness. And it is. Those things factor in. But I have found in my own experience and counseling with other people, most of the time, do you know what comes into factor? What comes into play? Doubt. Doubt. They believe either God doesn't care or there's nothing God is willing to... Are able to do about this? This is just too great. This is just too much for him. It's too big for God. God can't handle this. God doesn't want to answer this. I'm not righteous enough for God to care. I haven't walked with the Lord closely enough. Lots of lots of mountains in this congregation, but I want to tell you: think of the Bible. Think of church history. Think of the Old Testament. Think of Hebrews 11. The halls of faith. You know that passage in Hebrews 11? Great Lord's Day meditation. All the amazing men and women listed in that chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews, that God did extraordinary. Ordinary people, that God through them did extraordinary things because of their faith. Because of their faith. Moses, Noah, Gideon, Abraham, Sarah. The women that are listed in there too. The judges. And listen, these people were flawed. Deeply and profoundly flawed people. Don't put halos on their head, guys. Read their stories. They weren't righteous in the way that we think of of righteousness. Their righteousness was in God. Their trust was in God. And one of the things I think that we forget, and this is where it's a challenge because the teaching that I've stood against most of my ministry, I really do believe God wants to answer prayers. Do you? He does. He loves to give his children good gifts. And do you know why? Because that gives God glory. That shows how heavy and weighty and majestic and powerful God is. And He loves to do that. In a sense, you could say, in a sanctified way, God loves to show off. But only in a way that's helpful to His people. And I could prove that by all the miracles Jesus did. Jesus didn't just show up and say, hey, you want to see me fly around a mountain? He could have. He could have done a, He have. The things Jesus could have done that would have left His audience stunned. And he did, but those things were only directed toward helping people, creating food for hungry people, casting out demons with oppressed people, raising dead people from the grave, right? He did things to show us power, but in a way that was helpful to people. Jesus loves to demonstrate his power. A life-changing verse for me when I was a brand new Christian. I had just read the Old Testament, maybe for the first time, all the way through. Even those passages that are really boring, right, to us, because we don't understand why they're there. Second Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 9, it says this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal toward him. (laughs) That's a a mind-blowing passage. Because it says God's looking for something. His eyes are running, roaming all throughout the earth. What's he looking for? Oh, God wants to show how powerful he is. Well, I want to see how powerful he is. Well, then ask him. Take your mountain to this God who can level it. <laughs> Have faith in this God. Ask him. You know, what, you know one of the most bold prayers in the Bible, what it was? Lord, show me your glory. Show me. The word glory, kabod in Hebrew, it means heavy, weighty. The surfers and skaters used to say that back in the 70s and 80s. Heavy, dude, right? That's righteous, (laughs) wicked, that's heavy, that's amazing. Glory means heavy. God wants you to see how weighty and how glorious and mighty and powerful and giving that he is. But listen, this is the truth. You take this to the bank. Sometimes he won't show you unless you ask. God wants you to seek him. He wants you to knock and to seek and to ask, and he will answer. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's the teaching of this passage. That's why Jesus' answer floors us, asking faith. You know what he says? They're like, Lord, how did you do this? You know what he says? He says, well, you see, <clears throat> this is how it works. Your prayer, and then it comes quadrilaterally, and then it goes, and he says, have faith in God. Simple answer. Should knock us off our feet. Have faith in God. Because the power is not in your faith. That's the lie that's so prospered through false teaching. The power is not in your faith, guys. The power is in the object of your faith. <laughs> right? What holds you up if you're on a frozen lake? Your faith in the ice or the ice? <laughs> now, listen, the people that know the ice that are out there skating around having a good time, they're really enjoying the ice more than the person that's going, oh, waiting to hear the crack. So the more familiar you are the more familiar you are with God and his power and his love, you're gonna enjoy God a lot more and you're gonna flourish. But listen, it's not your weak faith. It's going to move the mountain. The Bible says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and so many people miss miss that riddle, it's not just because that's the smallest seed known in Palestine at that time. It's because also that that seed grows into an amazing tree that provides shade and nesting for birds and for life to flourish and thrive. Does that make sense? God wants to show how glorious and powerful he is. He does. The heavens declare this. I was looking with my daughter the other night. Um, I forget, it may have been NASA or some satellite image. They've, got, they've now gotten high-definition images of the surface of Jupiter, which is the biggest planet in our solar system. It's so big, it has four moons that circle around it. And I was looking at these pictures with her, and we were telling each other, like, you know, this is the first time, however old the Earth is, however many thousands of years, this is the first time, perhaps, that human eyes ever saw up close the surface of Jupiter. And it's sta- go Google it when we you're, when you're, when you get to your computer. It's stunning. It's staggering. It's like God made that. God created that by, by speaking his word. Why? Do we need Jupiter? I mean, may, probably there's some usefulness for it gravitationally or whatever. I think God just did it to say, look how beautiful I am. Look what I can do when I want to. I mean, God created the world, John Calvin said, as a theater for his glory. He didn't create it because he was lonely. You guys know that, right? He created it because he's a good God and he wanted to share his, his majesty with us. <laughs> That's why he created all these animals and nature and all oh, the beauty. That's why he created the church. He wants to share his glory. The more people that catch and see and behold his glory, uh, the better it is. And Jesus came declaring God's glory and revealing his glory. He's the brightness of God's glory ask in faith. That's what the Bible is really all about. And if we knew, if we knew, we would ask. You remember the woman at the well in John 4? And Jesus asked her for a drink, and she said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? You remember what Jesus said? He said, if you knew, if you knew who it was standing in front of you, asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living waters that will never dry up and you'll never thirst again. He said, if you knew who I am, you would ask me. (laughs) If you only knew who I am, you would ask. You would ask in faith. You would knock. You would seek. You would ask me to move those mountains and I would do it for you. (laughs) That's the promise here and it's staggering. Some of the things you see in the Bible. Do you know Elijah? James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Elijah was a man With a nature like ours. Just a crusty old prophet. Just a sinner, right? That God chose and used. And it says, but for three years, he controlled the weather in Palestine. Did you know that? (laughs) That's pretty amazing, isn't it? This crusty old prophet for three years controls the weather. Why? Because God wanted to teach Ahab a lesson. God wanted to teach us a lesson. God wanted to knock Jezebel uh, off the throne. And he wanted to destroy all the false prophets of Baal. And so God used a crusty old prophet named Elijah to control the weather for three years. That just blows my mind. And in that passage in James 5, it says, Because the fervent, effective, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the lesson there. If God can use crusty prophets and flawed men and flawed women to do amazing things for his kingdom, listen, he wants to use you too. He wants to move the mountains in your, in your life. And I know that sounds cliche, but I'll say it this way. The work of prayer is not overcoming God's resistance. It's laying hold of His willingness. God wants to bless. He wants to demonstrate His power and His glory and His love. So the work in prayer is not overcoming. God's up there with crossed arms wagging His finger, lecturing us, saying, I don't want to do this. No, the problem is not He's unwilling, Right? the problem is not that he's reluctant. The problem is we're unwilling. We won't go. We won't ask. We won't seek. We won't pray. With faith, all things are possible. Faith isn't the power. Faith is the empty hands that grabs hold of the power, which is Christ. It's an empty vessel. So that's point one. Ask in faith. And I I mean, there's an unblushing non-qualification in this passage, isn't there? I mean, let's, let's just read it again. Just let, let, don't think of any of the other things you know about prayer right now, even though that's ridiculous to ask you that as a pastor because I try to teach you that every week. Is take the whole Bible together, right? But just listen to this unblip, unblushing promise from God. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. That's asking in faith. Are you asking in faith? I want to challenge you today. Are you asking God in faith to move those impossible mountains in your life? Are you asking Him? God says to the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10, He says, Put me to the test. See if I will not open up the windows in heaven and bless you until your need is no longer. Don't you love the fact that we worship a God like that? <laughs> he wants to give good gifts to his children. He does, and he will. I believe that there are some things, Let's check this out, I believe there are some things God will do for his children when they ask that he won't do if you don't ask. Believe that, because the Bible says that. It says you have not because you ask not. If you would have only asked. Man, I just don't want to get to heaven and hear that. (laughs) Lord, why didn't you? Why didn't you? Because you didn't ask me to. You didn't ask me to. You presumed or you doubted. I just don't want that to be the epithet over my tombstone. Do you? I don't want that to be the epithet over this church either. I believe there's amazing things that God wants to do in and through this church. He's not going to do until we pray like this in faith. I believe that. From finding a building to reaching this community, to filling this auditorium up, I believe that. And I'm I'm preaching to myself here. This whole sermon's for me. I'm just inviting you to be here and listen. (laughs) I'm just preaching a sermon to myself this morning. So number one, ask in faith. Ask in faith. Number two, ask your father. Ask your father. Now, I did tell you there were no qualifications in this passage, but I lied. (laughs) No, I didn't lie. I'm going to show you there's, there's some small ones, but they're good ones, okay? They're good ones. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Verse 25. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. And we'll get back to that. Last point. So that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, when you pray, you're talking to someone, right? That you have a relationship with. And they're not a stranger, they're your Father. And fathers know what is best for their children. Do they not? Well, some of them do, human fathers. (laughs) I'm a father. I mean, I don't always know what's best for my kids. In fact, sometimes I give them stuff that's terrible for them. you know. But anyway, that's another sermon for another day. Um, God is a perfect father. He's the perfect father. And there's a very good reason why when we're getting taught on prayer from Jesus, he tells us, remember, you're talking to your father. And this is, I believe, if you want to say prayer, Prayer, (laughs) because it sounds like if you say, hey, look, whatever you ask, no matter what, whatever it is, God's going to give it to you. Just believe. If that was the only thing this passage says, and that was true, I mean, we could go out and start leveling mountains and cursing trees, right? But remember, we're asking our Father to do something in us, through us, and for us. We're asking Him. He's our Father. And so if you want to say prayer needs a safety latch, this is the safety latch, This is the safety net, I guess you could say. This is the look. This is not Aladdin's lamp. Let me ask you a question: If you believed, just bear with me, hypothetically, if you believed in Aladdin's lamp, that there's a lamp, and if you rub it, a genie pops out and gives you three wishes, whatever you want, man, whatever, lottery, spouse, whatever, whatever it is that you want, you know. Um, If you believed that, and and you saw a five-year-old little kid with Aladdin's lamp rubbing it, would you run? Wouldn't you run? Would that be dangerous? A five-year-old kid asking this genie for whatever he wants. I mean, if my kid had it, there'd be T-Rexes all over the place. Dinosaurs everywhere. It'd be dangerous. It would probably be deadly, right? I mean, just use... So let's not use that passage in this way. This is not Aladdin's lamp, right? And you would think, well, yeah, goodness. Okay, pastor, yeah. But, you know, when we're older, when we're like 10... Uh, We're wiser than when we're five, and we're not going to ask for dinosaurs. Yeah, we're going to ask for what? Lamborghinis and motorcycles and jet skis and trampolines and things that are going to kill us, right? Some of them. Um, My kid the other day, and I won't tell you who it is. (laughs) 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 My kid the other day actually asked his mother for a sheet. He said, Mom, give me a sheet. And she said, Why? And he said, Trust me. Thank God she didn't. <laughs> he was going to climb up on the roof and jump off with a sheet. Yeah, we, we, our kids haven't even seen Mary Poppins. I don't know what in the world got in his head. But he said, trust me, in his little seven-year-old mind, or her little, I'm not telling you who it is, they thought they would jump off the roof with a sheet, makes perfect sense, sense right? Gravity, sheet, umbrella, <laughs> parachute, and that they would have a soft landing back and forth. Uh, but this little, uh, this, ki- this kid said trust me. And and my wife said to him, you know what? You need to learn to hear that, not say that. Trust me. Don't say that. Um, Hear that. Hear hear your parents saying, trust me, you don't need this sheep. This is not going to go well for you. Okay. (laughs) But here's the lesson here, guys. Fast forward the tape in your life. Well, you know, we grow up though, don't we? And when we're 25, we don't ask for things that are harmful anymore. We don't ask for things that would be unprofitable for us and detrimental and devastating and would wreck our lives forever, do we? Especially when we're 40. I mean, we're so sanctified by then and mature. We've got everything figured out and we don't really... God, just do whatever I ask you because I know what's best. No, you are coming. You're coming to a father in prayer. And he knows... What is best for you. And I know that's a challenge. You're like, Preacher, I knew you were going to get me because I was thinking, just when finally a, a promise in the Bible that's, that's amazing and magnanimous, whatever we ask. But guys, this is, God loves us too much to give us Aladdin's lamp. He loves us too much. There's things that will not happen in your life if you had that kind of safetyless prayer <laughs> uh, guarantee, right? You know what I'm saying? That's what this passage is about. He says, uh, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. This is Jesus in another place. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he he says this. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil. He's talking to his disciples here. This is humbling. If you're evil fathers, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And he says, Holy Spirit, because that's the greatest gift anybody could ever give. He said, look, if you're an evil father and you think you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father know what's best for you? And I could reverse that. When your son asks for uh, for a scorpion, you don't give him a scorpion, do you? And sometimes we ask God for things that would destroy us, and he knows that. But I will say this. The Puritans used to say that God will answer, God will interpret your need, not necessarily your request. See, we think our request is our need. Let me, let me try and give you an example here uh, from the life of Paul, Second Corinthians chapter 12. God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, the Bible says. We don't know what it is, what it was. Scholars have killed themselves trying to figure this out, you know. Um, but we don't know. Maybe it was a physical debilitation. <clears throat> I don't know what it was. We don't need to know. But Paul begged God over and over and over to remove that thorn <clears throat> so that he could more effectively serve God as a pastor, a preacher, a church planner, and a missionary. Now, here's Paul. You would think of all the people that you would think would have their prayers answered. Do you think the Apostle Paul would be high on the list? Right? that he would be praying in accordance with God's will. But Paul begged God three times, Lord, take this thorn away. I want to serve you more effectively. This is holding me back. And you know what God said to the Apostle Paul? No. He said, no. I'm not going to remove that thorn, Paul, but I will tell you what I will do. I will help you interpret what's underneath your request. You want to serve me effectively. And you want to serve me um, in a way that's going to be enduring. Enduring. And a work that perseveres and endures. And that's why I'm leaving the thorn. But I'm going to give you something better than what you asked for. Rather than removing the thorn, I'm going to give you my grace. And my grace is going to be sufficient for you. For when you're weak, then you are strong. Do you see? Paul asked God to move a mountain. And God moved a different mountain for Paul. He didn't say no outright. He said, no, but yes. And that's what God does for us sometimes. If you could trace your life, all the things you prayed for, that had God answered your prayer the way you wanted him to answer it, you'd be in a pickle. You'd be in a jar of pickles, drowning, right? (laughs) Filled up with vinegar. God doesn't do that. One pastor said it this way. He said, God answers your prayers and my prayers the way you would if you were God and knew everything that he knows. Right? Maybe an oversimplistic way of saying it, but there's some truth to that. God answers your prayers and my prayers the same way you would were you God and knew everything that He knows, and meaning the beginning from the end and what is best, and the future and the past, and your writing history, all of those things. So that's one of the only qualifications um, in this passage is that you're coming to a father. So trusting God means, uh, one man said this, trusting God means we may receive answers we do not want. We may find things we are not looking for and we may have doors open and closed we don't expect. But God's a good father and he's going to give you what's best for you and he's going to give you what you need. And listen, that's, that's why prayer, prayer really does change us. You know, in the act of prayer, you are undergoing a miraculous transformation. I worked for a pastor in California named John MacArthur. Some of you guys know John. Maybe you have a study Bible or listen to him on Grace to You. He's an amazing man and one of my heroes of the faith. And I remember a story he told when his son Mark was younger and was playing college baseball and he started having these headaches and John took him to the doctor to get this, uh, his head checked out and they were concerned and they went to one of the top leading, what is it, neurologist or whatever, and this was an old, crass, uh, cranky doctor who had poked around on brains for so long, he had long foregone any bedside manner. If you ever met a doctor like that, you're like, yeah, you're probably going to die. You know, that, no bedside manner at all. Or it's probably cancer. And you're like, whoa, time out. <laughs> but this doctor was just old and cranky. And he looked at it and he dismissed Mark and told John MacArthur. He said, you know, this is probably fatal. There's a, there's a massive, looks like some kind of tumor near the optic, optic nerve. And uh, this is You know, we'll send him for the next eight days to run tests, but this is probably fatal. You need to brace yourself. And John was like, What? And he was younger than his kid was a teenager. And he said, instantly, instantly, I just went and I lost I fasted for eight days, not because I was hungry, because I had no appetite. I was just, you know, imagine your son, you'd just been told, hey, your son's probably not gonna live, you know, for very much longer. This is gonna be fatal. So he said for the next eight days his son was undergoing tests and he tried to hide it from Mark. And like, oh, you know, son, these headaches, they want to just check you out. But he said he began to pray. And in the beginning his prayers were, Lord, this can't be. This is a mistake. Recheck the list. you got the wrong kid here. This is a kid who loves you. He's given his life to you. He's playing baseball for your glory. (laughs) Which is rare, right? At a Christian uh, college, check the list. And he said God began to work in his heart. And then it was, Lord, comfort my son. Bring him comfort. You know, he, first it was heal my son, and then it was, Lord, comfort my son. If this is your will, comfort him. And then it was, Lord, just take him home. Just get him out of here. This world is terrible. <laughs> just take him home and take me, take me with him, would you? It was amazing how God had changed Dr. MacArthur's heart through praying for his son. And then eight days ended, and he got a phone call, and guess what? It was just some piece of flesh that was there, and his headaches were probably due to the fact that he was out in the sun practicing and he was a growing teenager and it was growing pains and it would probably amount to nothing, so no worries. And John went and hugged his son at school and told him, you know, what had happened, how serious they thought it was. And his son said, Dad, why do you think God put me through that? And he was like, put you through that? <laughs> he put me through that. But listen, that's what happens sometimes when you're taking these mountains to God to be removed. God changes your entire perspective on why that mountain may be there. And maybe there's a different one that needs to be moved. Maybe you're the mountain. Maybe you're in the way, and the mountain that needs to be moved is you being changed. And God does that. And listen, there's some things God will do to you and in you that He will only do through prayer. Because prayer is where you really see who you truly are. It is. That's when you are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And you can't hide. You can't hide things, and you shouldn't. Prayer changes us. And that's tremendously good news. That's why the greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer. It's unoffered prayer. That's the greatest tragedy is that there are some Christians, God would have given them things. And I don't mean Lamborghinis and private jets, okay? You know what I mean. I mean, God would have done things for them and through them if they would have asked Him. But they didn't. And man, that's convicting to me to hear that as a pastor and a church planner. Maybe it is for you too. I needed to hear that this week. So here's the third one, and we're, we're running out of time. I'm going to go fast. Number three, ask with forgiveness. Oh, here, here's the hard part of this, guys. Everyone got really quiet. <laughs> the last part of this prayer bites. I mean, it's got teeth, right? It stings a little bit. Listen to this. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Man, everybody thinks that grace and forgiveness is a wonderful idea until you have to extend it to somebody, don't they? Yeah? This says, if you have anything against, kata in Greek, it means down. It means you are are smothering somebody. You are holding a grudge that's destroying a person. You're not going to let them up. And God said, if you come to me in prayer and you have anything against anyone, you're holding anybody down for any reason, you're holding a grudge, you're bitter, and you're not forgiving them, no matter what they did to wrong you. He says, you are denying my grace. It's not so much this technicality, do your checklist. (laughs) Have I read my Bible this week? Check. Have I evangelized three people? Check. This is just being facetious here a little bit, okay? Um, have I forgiven everybody? Check. No. This is has much bigger ramifications than that. This is your whole attitude toward God and His grace. This is if you're coming to God asking for Him to be gracious to you, but you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what grace is all about. You're holding things against other people. That mean. Listen. Do you know what that means? That means you think you're superior to them. <laughs> it really does. And God says, you have a complete misunderstanding of my grace. If that's your posture and your attitude in prayer, is that you're coming to me, asking me to do things to you, in you, and through you. And yet at the same time, you're withholding forgiveness from somebody. God won't honor that. He won't honor that. That's a hard, that's one of the hardest sayings from Jesus. Because there's not a person in this room that hasn't been wronged by somebody. I will guarantee you, many of you are wrestling with grudges right now as you sit in your seat. And maybe your prayer life has been all jammed up because of it. And maybe that's the very mountain God wants to change in your life right there. Maybe that's it. And I'm telling you, God will. He can. He wants to. That will destroy. That will put you in debtors. There's a, that's a whole other sermon that needs to be devoted to that last point. Is what happens when we fail to forgive people, even if they don't ask. It doesn't say anything You know, and you know, of course, if they repent and crawl and grovel at your feet and give you a foot massage and beg your forgiveness and tell you how wrong they were. Nope, none of that. I know there's an argument about whether you should forgive somebody when they don't ask, but I don't find that argument here. I find you come to me in a posture of forgiveness, knowing you're just as bad off as they are. You need my grace equally, if not more than they do. In fact, I would even go further than to say this. The people you need to be praying for more than anybody else are the people that you're bitter against. <laughs> and how can you pray for them? I mean, that's, that's what you do. You bring your bitterness to God. You don't hide it from Him. like, Lord, I, there's things I want to see happen in my life, but I got this grudge. And you told me to cast all my burdens on you. And this is a terrible burden to me. I can't overcome it. I can't get past it. It's wrecking my life. It's making me bitter. It's coloring everything that I see in my world. And if you don't take it away, it won't go anywhere. Maybe that's what God has for us. God knows us and He knows we're grudge-holding people. He understands. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, check this out. If you have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't love, you are nothing. Those things go together. you got faith enough to move a mountain but you're bitter and angry and holding a grudge and you don't have love in your heart for this person, you're nothing. That's what the Bible says. Man, does that make you know how much you need God's grace in your own heart? I'm not doing this to scare you or intimidate you. This is good news. God's so honest with us. He wants us to take all of our grudges to Him. One of my favorite commentaries to read is by a man named Linsky. He was a Lutheran theologian. Very, very good to read. Very helpful. And he said this. He said, Let us not delude ourselves that we are most firmly and filling our prayers with faith while secretly in our hearts we hold something against somebody. And then Alan Cole went on to say this. Unless we forgive our fellow man freely, oh man, half of my page got cut off in my printer. No wonder that, that statement didn't make sense. Boy, what are we going to do here? Um, anyway, he's saying you don't understand grace if you don't forgive people. <laughs> uh, okay, let me end with this, all right? Final, final, final ending here. So, ask in faith. Ask your Father. Ask with forgiveness. Now, I want to read a, a story you're familiar with from Elijah in the Old Testament. Because when we come to God, let's be honest, we don't feel worthy to be there. We don't feel even though we're praying in, in the name of Jesus, you know what that means in the name of Jesus It means based on his merits his life his righteousness his perfection his accomplishments So often we come to god and we think We might as well pray in our name because we don't feel we're, well I haven't prayed enough this week lord and I haven't been a good christian and I, I, I fell here and here and here And you might as well pray in your own name Look the, the throne of the floor in heaven is not sprinkled with the sweat of your efforts It's sprinkled with the blood of Christ. That's why there's an altar up there, right? Christ made atonement. He made sacrifice so you can come to God with boldness and with confidence because there's a throne of grace there. We talk about this all the time. So I want to read this story to you. This is about Elijah, the crusty old prophet in the Old Testament. And you know, God used him to single-handedly bring down the false prophets of Baal. And this guy got downright gory. He slaughtered hundreds of these false prophets. And you may know the story. This is like... Uh, showdown at the O.K. Corral in 1 Kings chapter 17-18? and 18. There's a contest. There's been a drought for three years, thanks to the crusty old prophet Elijah. He prayed, and the heavens held the rain back. And so all these prophets are there, and, and Elijah shows up. And he's like, look, I'm tired of this wavering back and forth, Israel. Today's the day. We're going to figure out who is God. Okay? We're going to figure out who God is, who the real God is. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? So here's what we're going to do. You guys slaughter a calf, uh, build your altar, and you call down fire from heaven from Baal, and I'll do the same with Yahweh. And whoever, whoever's God answers with fire, he is God. How's that sound? And they said, sounds good to me. <laughs> Elijah's thinking. <laughs> so here's what happens. 1 Kings eighteen twenty five. Then Elijah said to the prophets, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. From morning, let me. From morning until noon, they prayed out loud, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice and no one answered. And then it says, And they limped around the altar that they had made. Man, what a, what a picture! What a picture of false religion! They cried out from morning until noon and they limped around their altar. Nobody heard. Nobody paid any attention. That's every other religion in the world besides Christianity. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. You say, maybe your God's on the potty. He's busy and he can't hear you. Hey, this is in the Bible, guys. I'm just reading what's in the Bible here. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. In verse 28, And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which means end of the evening. So get this picture, guys. A false religion with false followers who had been enticed by demons probably, They're praying, they're dancing, they're raving, they're cutting themselves, crying out to this false God who can't hear them all day. But there was no voice, it says. No one answered, no one paid attention. Isn't that so sad? And contrast that with what we have the truth of Christianity. Then Elijah the prophet, you know, he repaired the altar, he laid out some stones, and he doused it with three buckets of water. You remember the story. So that it was impossible for it to be a mistake, whether it was God or not. And he came near and he said, O God, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are the Lord, you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. He is Lord. He is God. That's amazing. That's a man, crusty old prophet, who mocked false religion, right? And he asked in faith, and God answered him. He shut up the heavens for three years. He, he, he fire fell from heaven and consumed this altar and this sacrifice. And what an example. You know, James 5.16 says, Hey, Elijah was a man like us, with a nature like ours. But he had faith in a big God. And and let me end by saying this. The only reason that you and I are ever able to cry out to God in prayer and He hear us and answer us is because of the scandalous truth that when Jesus was on the cross crying out for His Father, God didn't hear Him. God didn't answer Him. The heavens were silent and shut up. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God deserted Jesus on the cross. That's Christianity. You know why He deserted Him? Because you and I deserve that. We deserve to be abandoned, deserted, and forsaken. But Jesus took our place on the cross. And God didn't, God didn't hear his prayer. But God did raise him from the dead, didn't he? And listen, you don't have to dance around and rave from morning until evening and cut yourself with sword and the blood gush. Because listen, blood has already gushed on the one, <laughs> on the one whose sacrifice enables us to walk in the God's presence. And that, my friends, is the power of prayer.